No point in telling people what it's really about if they won't believe you. Is there? Or maybe there is. I want to talk tonight from Hebrews. Let's go back there. It's the beginning of the weekend and um, for some people it might have been a hard week. So for others it might have been easy. Uh, so whichever way it was for you, well, bless the name of the Lord and thank God it's the weekend. And you can give thanks to God that you've got two days of respite before you're back in the affray. But you'll be back there, don't worry. And it only gets worse. Uh, that's the truth. Gets worse one way or the other. Gets worse for the enemy or worse for you. Depends how you live. God who in sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past by the far, to unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things, by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he said, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and, in hate, and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister to them who shall be heirs of salvation. It's uh, a chapter that really, when you look at it, says so much in such a little space of time. And I want to just spend a little while looking at the question, 
of Christ being the heir of all things. God is going to inherit everything. God the Son. You'll find that in uh, verse uh, 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Christ is going to inherit everything. He's going to deal with everything. He's going to judge everything. Now, it would be wise, if that be so, for me to realize that in that day when Christ inherits everything, it would be better that I'd built things according to his kingdom. For anything that goes against his kingdom, when he establishes everything, is going to be burnt up with unquenchable fire. Therefore, I know very well that only those things that are according to the kingdom of God are going to remain. Christ is the heir. He's coming again, and in our lives and in our hearts and in what we do, only that which is built in him will remain. The rest is going to go up I was going to say in smoke, but the fire will probably be that hot that there won't be any smoke. That is not correct. No, the scripture does say there will be smoke that will ascend to heaven. So there will be smoke. And that's the truth. Now it would be folly to build something and build and build and work away and for nothing to remain. I was uh, spent today, it's one of those days where you settle down and you want to do one thing and you end up having to do other things because you can't do what you settle down to do. One thing I know is uh, someone was on the phone to me today and we were talking about a place where a person has built and built and built and never brought anything to fruition never ever succeeded never can't succeed but when we build in God it stands that's for sure when it's God who's doing the building and when God is establishing something that thing will stand it'll stand the test of time in the individual's life what won't stand the test of time is the organization we might like to surround ourselves with. That won't stand. Uh, the reason for that is any organization is only suitable for the point at which it's useful. The moment it ceases to be useful, God wipes it out. And organizations, it's rather like a man who builds a building and puts scaffolding around the building. Uh, I remember... I think it was last year, some Japanese flew over to London. And one of the parts of their trip was to go to Trafalgar Square. Was it Trafalgar Square? No, it was to um, uh, the Westminster uh, Houses of Parliament and see Big Ben. And they actually had a terrible row when they got over here because the Houses of Parliament had scaffolding and covers over it 
and these Japanese guys had bought all their cameras and stuff, and they couldn't take photographs and films of what they'd paid however many yen to get over here. And they were disgusted that they dared to clean the place when they came. And they tried to sue the company that brought them over because the pictures showed Big Ben as it was. And when they got here, it wasn't. It was just covered with tarpaulin, so they couldn't see it. And they were that disgusted. And you wouldn't leave scaffolding on a building, would you? I mean, scaffolding, the only purpose of scaffolding is to build or to clean. But it's not a permanent thing. And the methods and the uh, basis and the organization of anything is just scaffolding. It's not to do with life. It's merely the scaffolding. And it looks ridiculous when you have scaffolding with no building being built. Now, a lot of Christian lives are, are basically just scaffolding. That's all. They've got all the structure, which is nice and right, but no one's bothering to build a building. Now, no one lives in scaffolding, except monkeys. You just wouldn't live in scaffolding. I mean, scaffolding's not there to be lived in, is it? And yet a lot of people, they structure everything and they've got all the scaffolding up. Nothing solid is ever built. And then, you know, when they come to move on, they just take down this scaffolding and resurrect it somewhere else. And they can never understand why nothing works. There is just nothing there. Now, God is not about to inherit scaffolding. And a lot of people's kingdoms can be dismantled that quickly there is no substance to them really what you've got is a big organization this fellow he's said that there's three things he's decided that are important to build a church and I was amused when I heard the three things this is what he's going to do his church is in a mess so he's decided on three things would you like to hear what they are number one he's going to because his preaching has been so deep, the church hasn't understood it. So now he's going to make it simple. Kiss. Keep it simple, stupid. And so he's going to go and he's going to make it simple. Now the second thing he's going to do and this took great revelation, is he's decided that the reason all the people in the church are in a mess is because the elders haven't visited them regularly. So now they're going to have an eldership visitation of all the people in the church to sort their lives out. And then the third solution is that the reason things aren't healthy is there's no evangelism. So he's going to get the hospital patients to go out and evangelize and tell everyone how wonderful it would be to be healthy. Now, if you were really sick and you went out and said, I have a cure for your, all your ills, as you hobble on crutches, you look emaciated, you know, your face is jaundiced and yellow, 
your cheeks are sunken, your eyeballs kind of stuck in sockets and look all wrong, big black rings under the eyes and your legs are totally emaciated and you kind of stagger along <coughs> and you say, I want to tell you about life. I mean, who would be convinced? But, you see, if you get evangelism as well, so here's his remedy. Well, it's scaffolding with no substance. You see, I come and minister, and there's only one thing that's important, to minister the presence of God. The rest doesn't matter. You don't need a visit from an elder if God's met you. You don't need evangelism if the people are full of the life of God. When they go out and share, people will respond and say, what is it about that person? You don't need all the scaffolding when the true substance of life is really there. But if you haven't got that, you better build your scaffolding and you know put the tarpaulins up so no one can see what's behind them. And you just say you're cleaning up the building at the moment. You're, you're getting ready. You know, you're laying the foundations. I, I've been to, I used to live in a church like that. Robert Maidry will remember it. You know, they were always, this was the foundation. Nothing ever got built. But we got a lot of holes everywhere. They just dug and dug and dug. They were always laying the foundations. They, you know, that, that was the idea. And the scaffolding was to stop people falling in the holes. That's how I'm sure of. In fact, there were enough pits for anyone to fall in around where they were building. They tried a pit on every street corner. Uh, of course, nothing ever got built because there was nothing really to build. You see, what I need is the one who's the heir of all things. I don't need a building. I don't need uh, an idea. I don't need a structure. I need the person who's the living embodiment of everything. Jesus Christ. He's the heir of all things. I want to be part of his inheritance, don't you? If he's the heir, there's one thing I want to him, him to inherit. That's me. I want to be part of the bride. I don't care about the structure. In fact, to me, the structure is superfluous. It doesn't matter. The ideas that hold everything together doesn't matter to me. The doctrine isn't that important. Because if you meet the person, you'll know the truth. If you have the living reality, that's the end of it. And what our lives have got to do is always come back to Jesus Christ. There's no other way. You know, you can go and you can say, well, I've got this problem, I've got that problem. Well, the answer is Jesus. I'm sick. Well, he's my physician. I need help. Well, he's my counselor. I need wisdom. Well, he is wisdom to me. I need redemption. He is my redemption. I need justification. He's my justification. I need help. He's my help. In fact, Jesus is everything. I don't need an elder. Although it's nice to have elders in the church. People are older than other people in the faith. It's nice to have pastors. They've passed everything. 
And it's nice to have people who can come along. But in reality, what my need is in my heart is for the presence of God. Isn't it? What I need is him. I don't need anything else. And he is the heir of all things. There is no answer outside of him. And people mistake it. They get so complicated. They want answers. But there is no answer. You want an answer in your life? I'll give you an answer. Jesus is the answer. You have a problem? I'll tell you the solution. Jesus Christ is the solution. But we don't want that solution. We want another. You say, well, in my work, there's a problem. Jesus is the answer. Say, well, how can he be the answer? Because when he's there, everything gets sorted out. But how can he sort it out? Well, he's the heir of all things. He can sort anything out. Could he really? Hmm. No problem. What about in my emotional life? Well, he can sort that out. One day he's going to take possession of your emotions. What a mess some of you are going to give him. He'll sort them out. He's going to take your life. Chest and all. And he'll sort it out. He's going to take your heart. He's going to take everything about you. And he'll sort it all out. You're his inheritance. He's the heir of all things. Now there's some things he's going to inherit that he's not going to like. And he's going to burn them up. His enemies. Wickedness. He'll burn them up with unquenchable fire. But the things that are going to make up his bride, the persons who are going to make up his bride, they're going to be welcome. He'll inherit them. Now, if that's so, what I need to do, I need him in my life now. Hmm? I need to say, Lord, take possession of your inheritance now. I don't want to wait till eternity when the curtains roll back and then it's a question of am I in or am I out? It's about time I got the thing decided now. Hmm? I need it decided now, don't I? Not tomorrow, not next week. I need my whole life committed now. Christ is truly the heir. And, and the only thing I need, <coughs> excuse me, in life, I need Christ. I don't need solutions. I need him. He is the solution for everything. Say, so, well, how will he help? Well, I don't know. Do you want me to be candid? I really don't know. What I do know is when he steps into the affray, everything changes. That I know. What will he do? Well, I don't know. What I do know is when he comes, he'll do the right thing. Because he's smarter than you. That I know. And when he comes, he'll meet your needs. Not your wants, your needs. That I know. 
In fact, I have total confidence in him stepping in and doing what he wants to do when I'm walking in faith. There's times when I don't have confidence that he'll do what he'll do, and that's when I panic. Do you know what I mean? There's times when suddenly news hits you and you think, Lord, what have we done? And then I need to sit down and my wife says to me, well, you know, it's all in God's hands anyway. And I look at her and I say, yes, I suppose it is. And then she says, yeah, well, just forget it, you know. What'll be, will be, God'll work it out. Not that I'm a fatalist, but once I've committed it into his hands, no point in taking it back, is there? What is there? I bought a Chinese puzzle. I don't know if you've ever seen them. Those nice wooden puzzles, you get a barrel and you take it apart. And there's only one way to get it back together again. Now, I was smart. I took it apart and remembered how I took it apart. I can get it back together. But a lot of people can't. I want to tell you, God sorted out and created the whole universe. He knows everything. If there's a mess, I tell you, he can put it back together. No trouble at all. If your body's all decrepit and decayed like some others I know here, um, don't worry, he'll put it back together. And it won't just be a lettuce leaf. He's got ways of healing, he's got ways of meeting our needs. Hmm? Now he knows the answer, but the last person we like to go to is him. He's the last person, he's the last resort. We resort to him when everything else has failed. That's our motto. In fact, I hear some evangelicals say, God helps those who help themselves. Well, I've never found that's true. I used to go into the candy cupboard and help myself, and I didn't find God help me. I always got found out. You know, you mustn't help yourself. God intends to help you. God intends to deal with you. God intends to make your needs a, a real thing that he'll meet. And all he's trying to do by giving needs in your life is to just get your attention. He brings you to desperation till you hold up your hands in horror and you say, I cannot do anything. Lord, if you don't do it, I'm sunk. Now, he specifically works very hard to bring you to that end. Now, the amazing thing is our great tenacity for holding on by the fingernails. There are people who, no matter what you do, never seem quite to get to an end of themselves. Do you know the type of people I mean? They're sick, their kids are sick, the wife's sick, the home's sick. The children are sick, the discipline's sick, the Christianity's sick, the church is sick, everything's sick. And yet somehow they see a solution in themselves. They don't have the eyes open to say, hey, just a minute, what is God saying? But what God is really saying is, I'm heir of all things. What I want is going to be what's done, not what you want. Now, we'd like to do it our way. 
And in the end, God's going to intervene and he's going to pressure you till you can't do it your way. Now, it doesn't mean that you're wrong because you can't do it your way. It merely means that God's right. Do you remember? God, you're right. I'm wrong. Do you remember that? The prayer of the Levites. But we don't like to pray that prayer, do we? I mean, we're never wrong. We're misunderstood, misquoted, misguided. But we're never wrong until God puts such pressure on us till everything falls around us and we then finally admit we can't do anything and then we might just get to the stage of saying, oh Lord, well, you know, obviously you're trying to say something to me and I'm not hearing. Not many of you have got to that stage yet. Not many. That's the tragedy. It takes a long time in our lives to get to the place of the end of ourselves. Doesn't it? I mean, you just... And different things. I was listening to Robert, my wife reminded me of it, on the tape. Uh, a tape, you know, he, he something he preached in uh, wherever it was he preached it. Where did he preach it? Atlanta. And um, I can't remember now what he preached. Oh, yes, I can. Uh, yeah, he was preaching how God had dealt with his fears. And there came a time when God let things into his life. Disasters. But God let them into his life on purpose. And he took away all the restraints and these things just crashed in and crashed around him and crashed around his ears until God could get at the underlying fears that he wanted to get at. The Lord wasn't so uh, anxious about the disasters. What God was anxious about was dealing with the individual. God's wanting to get inside you and deal with you. The circumstances are merely the ways at which he can get and show you what you really are. Now, your reactions are really the things that God's getting at. Have you got it? It's how you react. That's what God's watching. And he's trying to get through to your thick blockhead that your reactions and the things that motivate you are the things he's trying to deal with and everything else is superfluous. It's merely the instrument he's using. Now we spend all our time looking at the instrument and totally ignoring what he's going to do and what his aim is in our lives. I remember I go to the dentist and as soon as he turns on the drill I only have one thought. That's that drill's getting too close. In fact, you know, when I go to a dentist I sit in the chair and he says open your mouth and I break out in a cold sweat. <laughs> That's before he's got inside. Uh, I, I'm just one of those people I don't know that somehow having someone else stepping in your mouth is not a nice feeling. Uh, whatever he's going to do. Now he's going to rectify something. So he tells me. And he always says it won't hurt and it does. I mean that's a dentist for you. That's how they train them. 
In fact, do you know there's more suicides amongst dentists than any other profession? They have terrible nightmares of falling in someone's mouth either, or whatever. They, they do. <laughs> more alcoholics and stuff. It's terrible. You get a rejection syndrome if you're a dentist. No one li likes to see you. I mean, you imagine everyone walks in and they kind of, hello. <laughs> they don't even want to smile at you. You know, you get a real feeling of, hello, someone's leaving now. Does the dentist put you off? No, it's okay, Jason. Just run up the stairs, yeah, the thought of it. Um, but a dentist gets in and he gets in at, at your mouth and he's going to do good things, maybe. And he's going to rectify things, but none of us like that. And no one, uh, when you see, you know, if you've ever been to, to medicine and you've, you've had uh, someone come along, I remember one day, well, when I was in America, they kind of took me in the operating theater. They were going to cut out my arm and do surgery on it. And when I kind of got in the operating theater, being conscious, because I only had a local anesthetic, and they kind of tie your arm up there, and you think, this is it, he's going to start. And you see all the instruments neatly laid out, and he picks up the scalpel, and you don't think how nice, you know, what, you know it's good he's going to put right, there's a nerve in my arm out of place, I'm glad he's going to operate on that. You look at the nurse and start saying, it's nice weather today. <laughs> And fortunately, they put a sheet up so I couldn't see. Uh, but there they were. I could, you know, I couldn't feel much. I could just hear the tinker of the instruments as he put them down. And then he'd peer over the sheet, and there you'd see his little microscopes because it was, you know, nerve surgery. Little microscopes on his glasses, and he'd smile and say, "It doesn't hurt, does it?" I said, "Not at all, not at all." It was later it hurt, but. There he goes, and he's operating away. What I was worried about was what he was doing with that stuff, the other side of the sheet. Oh, you could hear it every so often. That you know how a scalpel sounds when it hits that kind of stony surface, ting, 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 and you know you hear him picking up something else, and he says, "Oh, nurse, pass so and so," and and then he says, um, leans over the top, and he says. Uh, would you like plastic surgery or shall I just do a normal stitch-up? I said, well, what's the difference? And he said, well, it'll look nice with plastic surgery. I said, oh, well, I'll have that then. He said, no increase in price. I said, oh, that's fine. <laughs> so then he goes back over the other side and, you know, past the needle, you know, and you, 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 you think, what are they doing there? Then you see him kind of tying up the gut in his teeth and you think, dear Lord... You know, is he really going to darn me arm? And, and off they go, and they do this and that, and then he says, well, now I'll put plaster on it. And, off they and, and your mind is concerned with the instruments of torture. What you're not really concerned with is what's being accomplished. You don't think how wonderful, if any of you have had an operation, you know, you, you go, I've had two now, but you go and you, you get into the hospital, and I had a, my last first one wasn't so nice as the second. You wonder how on earth they're going to do it. That's what I did. I thought, how are they going to do that? You know, trussed up like a chicken or something. You wonder how they're going to do these things. You don't know. Once they've got you out, mate, they can do anything. 
That's what I thought. Now, they come in and they're polite and they're nice and they smile at you and you think, yeah, you know. <laughs> and then they get you down there. Knee lint, you're out. Count to ten. They know you can't make it. <laughs> you only went to third grade. You can only get to seven. And you're out. And, and off you go. And you don't know how they're going to... They could do anything to you. You could wake up with anything missing. Oh, I mean, it's awful. And the only thing you think about... I remember getting trundled into that place. and They kind of started... And you get into the operating theater and you've had a pre-med, so you're dozy enough not to be able to get up and walk out. And you, you lie there and you can see all these things and a big light kind of beaming down on you. And uh, you're not sure whether you're on canny camera or not. And, and there it is right in front of you and you're feeling a bit woozy. And then they take hold of your arm and they start strapping it up so the blood starts throbbing and, and they say, count to ten and break. End goes the needle. Now what I was concerned about was all those trays of weapons on the right-hand side, I could see them all. And I tell you, some of them look pretty rough. They, if you've ever watched an operation, you know, when they get the hacksaw and the chisel and hammer. I mean, you think they're gentle. You think, you know, you think of a surgeon, ever so precise. Not a bit of it. I tell you, they get an old hacksaw out. Just hope they lose the new blade on you. They do. You ask my wife. They chisel away with a hammer and chisel, don't they, love? I mean, it's, it's no joke, you know. They treat you like a lump of wood. They do. Chip off the old block, you know, and bang. You think, you think these, these surgeons talk about a steady hand. How can you have a steady hand when you've got a hammer and chisel in your hand? thump away yeah and you think you know you've got a wonderful man you know good hands yeah, not so good if the hammer misses the chisel hits his thumb oh and, and you imagine your life's in their hands and you look and you think well your body's in his hands anyway and you look and you think goodness me now what you get really attached to is the instruments what you never seem to see is what it's going to do for you. And God uses circumstances. And what we get our eyes on is all the weapons on the right-hand side that are going to be used in the operation. Now, what we never, ever really get to grips with is what God's doing inside. We don't worry about what he's going to accomplish and how he's going to heal us and how he's going to reach our needs. What we're concerned about is that whacking great long table with a hacksaw on and everything else. And you think, dear Lord, and when you see the surgeon move towards the hammer and chisel, you nearly pass out. And, and no thought is ever on what God's going to accomplish in your life. It's more on what the instruments are, isn't it? Hmm? It's rather like taking a degree, rather than taking it in architecture, you take it in scaffolding. You're more interested in the scaffolding and the poles and everything than you are in what's going to be accomplished inside. 
And if I were to go around to each one and say, well, what's your problem? Your problem would be the outward circumstances and pressures that are instruments in God's hand to get at the real thing he wants to deal with in your life. We always seem to get caught up with the pressure. What we never seem to face is the real issue. We always get caught up with the scaffolding. We never get caught up with the building. We always get caught up with the exteriors and we miss the internals. The circumstances are the things that really capture our imagination. True? If you ask anyone, they don't really see what God's about. They only see the circumstances. And God is wanting to get hold of us and to do something very, very different in our lives. God's wanting to open up our hearts. God's wanting to search our souls. And what he has done is he's put tremendous pressures on you. And when you come into Christ and when God really meets you, one of the things that happens is everything begins to go wrong. After a good little while. Initially when you come into Christ, everything goes right and you walk on air until your shoes deflate. And then you begin to walk on the ground again and then God begins the work of dealing with your soul. Now the honeymoon period, as I said, I think it was when we dealt with Exodus, there was a time when the children of Israel came out of bondage. Do you remember? And God wouldn't take them into war. Do you all remember that? There was a time when he said, no, you're not ready to fight yet. And he feared if they went into a battle too early, they'd go back to Egypt. So he took them and he didn't let them go into warfare. That was with Amalek. Do you all remember? Right, now, God always works that. But the times come when the real wars are coming in our lives. And what happens is we don't like the wars. What we want is the honeymoon period. It's like when you get married. don't know if most of you have, uh, well, a good few of you have had that pleasure. Now, marriage is something that is strange. Until you're married, you never know what the person you're marrying is really like. You really don't. If you did know, there wouldn't be many marriages. You don't, you meet the person you think they are, and you pretend to be the person you think they'd like you to be. And that's the way you go on. That's called courting or conning, whichever way you like to look at it. You're certainly caught and conned. But it's nice. It's a nice time. But it's when you're married and when you're actually facing the reality of living with this person who was so wonderful, you suddenly find out that the, well, you know, after the honeymoon, there's a period of maybe six weeks or seven weeks or ten weeks or for us ten years. But, you know, any, there's a time when suddenly the varnish starts to get chipped. And the real person begins to shine through. 
And the irritating things begin to hit you. And there are irritating habits. Now, they weren't noticeable until you were married and living together, and then suddenly you notice them. And everyone has those little idiosyncrasies. And you wonder whether you would have married them if you'd known about it before you were married. And the truth is, if you had, you probably wouldn't. That's why God didn't let you know. And that's why courting is such a civilized method. In India, you know, they don't allow them to court. They just marry them off. People they haven't seen. And they learn to fall in love afterwards, if ever. And sometimes I think that's far more civilized than the Western method. At least you haven't been conned. Or caught. Ted. But you learn. Now God puts pressure on you. And when you're living together, to live with someone, uh, there are all sorts of differences. You have differences of temperament. I mean, I like it warm. You might have noticed that. I do like the heat. My wife likes the cold, and it's surprising how after you're married and someone has graciously given you a wedding present of a nice electric blanket, how you like it on and your wife likes it off. And so there's a little dispute until you make sure the switch is on your side. <laughs> but if there have been, then you can sort it out in the way it should be. And then you find that because the switch is on your side, the window's on her side, she opens the window. And then you wait till she's dozed off so you can close it before you freeze to death and you get frostbite on your ears. You know, the little things that go on in marriage that no one talks about until... Uh, my wife likes it cold, I like it hot, you know, and I could not believe it. I mean, how could I have married someone who liked the window open? You know, with fog coming in, you kind of wake up in the morning and you can see your breath. There's kind of icicles on your eyebrows. I mean, you know, that's because she was brought up in a vicarage where they had no heating. I just ran to get warm. I mean, you, you learn the different idiosyncrasies. Now, to begin with, I, I never found out those secrets about her, naturally, until we were married. And then I wondered what I'd done. I wondered whether to send her home to the vicarage so she could freeze to death for a bit. But, boy, was it cold. Anyway, we've come to a compromise now. The windows stay closed, and that's the end of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, these things all get sorted out in time, and she's learned to be gracious, do as she's told took me a little while, but, you know, you win in the end, Charlie. Don't worry. You win in the end. Victory shall be yours, Charlie. Uh, and you learn that. And then you learn that she cooks all the dishes you don't like. She likes the things you don't like, and you like the things she doesn't like. And so you have to re-educate her taste, which is not too difficult to do, providing you can cook. Otherwise, you've got a problem. And you find all sorts of things out once you're married. But it's a strange thing. Love is nothing really to do with the externals. It's what it works on the inside.
It's called caring for one another. It's called flexibility. Or in my case, intransigence, or whatever you like to call it. Uh, but there's no way that window's staying open. But <laughs> whatever you want to call it, you know, she was flexible. That's what she had to learn. God wanted to give her grace to learn how to be flexible. Now, he had to teach me things. I won't tell you about them, but he had to teach me things because I can't think of any. Um, but you learn. And we get together and we learn. And our experiences in relationships is so different. I was saying to someone to, today, you know, people think relationships should all be the same, but they're not. I mean, I, I become one with my wife. There's union with my wife. I live with her. Now, I don't live with other people in the church. Thank, uh, thank you. Um, thank the Lord for some of the deliverances. But you live with your, you live with your wife, you know, and, you, and that's one relationship. Then I have a relationship with my children. They're different. They're part of the family. Then you have a relationship which is different with people outside the family. Then you have a relationship with people who are outside the church. Then you have different... Now, there's all different areas of relationship. You're not all the same. You don't treat everyone the same, do you? Hopefully. And people don't understand that. They think everything should be level. Now, God brings pressures at all those different levels. There's a level of pressure with your wife. Just telling Peter, you know, I felt he should learn this. And Rachel, I thought, you know, it's good counsel for them. They probably tell me afterwards, that's it, they're finished. <laughs> oh, I, I can imagine Rachel going, do you like the window open at night? <laughs> Just want to check out. Um... <laughs> there's all sorts of pressures that's, if you ever caught that's one question you always want to ask um, you learn and all sorts of pressures and God brings the pressures at different areas and different realms in our life now what God is really working at in all those areas is to deal with things and the instruments of those pressures we don't like and we get our eyes set on the instrument God uses rather than seeing what God's accomplishing. Now, what is really interesting is not God's instrument, but what he's actually after achieving in your life. Because once he's achieved it, then he won't need to use that instrument anymore in that way. He'll find a more sinister way of using it. Um, or he'll remove the instrument uh, in his hands and, and you'll think well that was a wonderful deliverance and God's only working on our insides now what we have done is we've got so involved with looking at the externals we've never ever looked on the internal side and said well what's God accomplishing by this now I do want you to get it right I don't mean that everything that happens in your life you don't go and say I wonder what God's saying to me I remember meeting a pastor who, who'd kind of 
bent the oil pipe over in his engine when he put it back together and he started and there was no oil pressure because the pipe was bent over and the oil wasn't going around and he kind of was taking it all apart when I met him and kind of wiping his brow and oil all over his forehead and he said, oh, I wonder what God's trying to say to me. So well, what God's trying to say to you is don't be an idiot and bend the oil pipe over when you put the engine back together. I mean, we don't want to get so spiritual that we look for it in everything. But when there's a continual thing that keeps happening, then we have to say, okay, God, what is it you're trying to deal with in my life? You're the heir of all things. You're in control of everything. What is it you're really getting at? Where are my motives wrong? Where are my attitudes wrong? Where are my feelings wrong? What are you after getting at? And we then begin to examine what God's after. Now most of us end up looking only at the instrument, looking only at the scaffolding, looking only at the tools, and we fail to see what really is going on. And that's the tragedy. Christ is at work. He's building. And Christ wants to do something very real in your lives. But what a lot of you have got caught up with, and what we all get caught up with at times, is the problem of the instrument that he's using. It's the issue, the pressure that he's bringing. What we don't look for is saying, what are you trying to accomplish? What is it you really are at? Now, Robert said that uh, when he was in Argentina, what happened, I'll tell you, because he made it public, didn't he? Oh, no, no, he didn't make it public. Huh? Well, I know what happened. Um, well, anyway, he brought pressure on him in such a way that he didn't expect. Did he make it public or didn't he make it public? No, he didn't make it public. Okay. Um, in a way, he didn't expect he brought pressure on him through a person. And it was very, very difficult. And what God was actually after wasn't the person, wasn't what the person did, but it was after certain fears that Robert had inside. God was out to get to them. And the instrument and how God did it didn't matter at all. Now we get so involved with the person, we get so involved with what they're doing, we fail to see what God's after accomplishing. And it was only when the pressures were really great and God had so opened him up to a terrible harassment that he really faced the issues in his own soul. And sometimes all God's doing in allowing tremendous pressures to come is he's trying to expose what's really inside us that he wants to deal with. And once Robert faced up to that and once he got his fears dealt with, instrument was dealt with God dealt with the thing that he was using because there's no purpose he's not there to torture us he's there to deal with that which is wrong and we've got to come to the place of seeing that that's how God's operating he's operating on us God's wanting to change you God's wanting to transform you God's wanting to deal with the things inside now, I don't like it, and you don't like it. Hmm? 
When the pressures come, none of us like the pressures, do we? What we'd like to do is be free of the pressure. Wouldn't we? None of us want to face up to why the pressure is there. And what we need to do is to start saying to God, what is the reaction that's pr produced inside? How does it affect me? What are the fears that rise up? What are the terrible traumas that come? Now that is where the real issue lies. It's what the fears are. Because most of us are subject to fear all our lifetime. Now it might be fear of pain. Might be fear of rejection, fear of death. Might be fear that you'll lose this or fear you'll lose that. Any pressure will come to really manifest the fears. And those fears are very real. Terrible fears, torments of mind. Have you ever gone to bed and your mind's tormented? You wake up and you have terrible fears. What if? What if never happens, but what if? And the circumstance produces that reaction in you. Do you know what I'm talking about? No? Hmm? Now, fear not. God will bring those pressures till that fear is dealt with. Until... Job could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. No matter what happens, I'm going to trust him. He's sovereign, he's in control. Now the last thing we get to is that position, isn't it? All hope has to vanish before we get to that position. Haven't you found that? If you think there's any stroke you can pull to get out of it, don't you pull it? If you think there's any scheme which will avoid that problem, won't you use that scheme? And it's when you're at the end of your tether, when you've tried everything and nothing succeeded, and you've totally given up hope and you despair, that finally God can get down into your heart and really deal with the issue. Up to that point, you cover it up. And as I said, the amazing propensity for survival that some of us have, the amazing propensity for avoiding the real issues. Well, I want to spend the weekend talking about the issues and talking about the pressures and how God brings them. Now, I can speak from first-hand experience because I have a few pressures, 80 of them. Or 85. I don't know how many. You. And I have to look at each one. Each one is a classic problem. Each one has its own idiosyncrasies. Each one is a pressure that's applied that no one else could apply. Each one is totally unique. Each one tries to the uttermost something. 
And each one is so developed and so cultured and so able that I bless God. There should be no stone left unturned. There should be no area that hasn't been totally devastated. There should be nothing left. And that in all our lives, every area of our lives, we need testing on. Hmm? And so God has given you to me. And he's also given me to you. Now, as one man, I should be able to meet the 80s need. In other words, all 80 of you, there's just one of me to really be that pressure to get at you. I have 80 of you getting at me, but there's only one of me getting at you. And, and therefore, you've got a cheap deliverance. Of course, your other brethren, the others, however many it is, they'll all be getting at you too. And pressure comes. Pressure builds. You go out to work and you know how it jars. Have you ever met? Hmm? God's getting at you. Say, so, well, is that spiritual? No. No. But it's the only true spiritual truth there is. God's not concerned with your circumstances. God's not concerned with how you live so much. He's concerned with what you live, what you are. And he's out to get all of us conformed to his image. I've realized that things happen because God has a purpose in it. As I said today, my wife laughed and things that used to two years ago I know if my wife had heard some of the things we heard today she'd have gone into a trauma wouldn't you but God dealt with her two years ago thank God and now it didn't bother her at all so now I've got the problem to carry on my own (laughs) Uh, it doesn't bother her now it bothers me and I look and I think why is she sitting there so smug it's just because she's gone on further, you know. It's terrible, isn't it, when your wife's gone on further. But that's the only area. Um, <laughs> you know, I don't want you to think she's a saint. It's a God's doing things. He's the heir of all things, is Jesus. And therefore, what it's building is something for eternity. You are going to be God's inheritance. You as an individual are going to be God's inheritance. And God is very careful that everything that happens in your life is accomplishing his purposes. Now, sometimes it doesn't seem as though it is. I think that when David got caught with Beersheba and Nathan came along, David must have felt that that was it. But it wasn't. When uh, Elijah ran off, terrified of Jezebel and hid himself and he wanted to die I think he probably thought that was the end of everything but it wasn't and God brings us down and we often think oh dear this is it but it never is God is working in our lives and we need to see that God in his patience and his love is at work There is nothing happening in your life today that is not an instrument of God.
Even the devil is an instrument of God. No circumstance that happens happens by chance. God is at work. God is planning everything, structuring everything to deal with you. In fact, your sicknesses, your diseases, your uh, pressures at work, your pressures at home, your pressures with your children, everything is basically getting at you. God's wanting to do something in you. And that's wonderful. Now, he'll also do something in other people while he's doing something in you. But what you've got to look at and what you've got to see is that Christ is in control and start with the substance, Jesus Christ. Start with making him central and start with him. Say, all right, God, whatever it is, that's what I want. And open your hearts and begin to examine yourselves and say, God, what are you trying to get at? What are you trying to do? What is it you really want? Well, I felt this weekend we'd spend time looking. Do you know the first thing God deals with is angels? And you'll find that in the epistle to the Hebrews, what he talks about is how Jesus is above all the angelic hosts. That's important to know. That's what we'll share next time. How Jesus controls all spirit forces. I've talked about the natural forces that you can see. I want to take the curtain away and look at the spiritual forces that are behind the natural forces. But know this, that everything is working together for good to them that love God. Nothing is to destroy. Everything's to save. Everything's to refine. Everything's to perfect. That's what God's doing. Isn't he wonderful? But isn't it so hard to believe at times? Hmm? Well, isn't it? There's times when you just wonder how it could be. Lord, how can this do anything? Well, I don't know. What I do know your answer is in Jesus. Whatever it is, he is the answer. Whatever your need is, he is the answer. Let's pray. Father, Thou knowest each heart and each life here. Lord, and there are great mysteries hidden in thee. So hard to understand why we react the way we react. So hard to understand our fears, our anxieties. So hard to understand the pressures of life. But one thing we know, Lord Jesus, you're the answer to every need. You're the answer to make that thing in our lives an instrument of blessing. You'll take what seems the most devastating thing and make it into a tremendous blessing for all eternity. Lord, the greatest trial 
often becomes the greatest lesson. The greatest hardship often becomes the greatest deliverance. The greatest need works in the richest gold. Lord Jesus, raise the hearts of thy people in faith to see it's your hand. We're the clay and you're the potter. You're out to build something real, firm and solid in our lives. Let us get our eyes off the instrument and onto thee. Lord Jesus, teach each one patience. The trial of our faith is much more precious than fine gold. And yet how we hate our faith to be tried. Lord, turn our hearts to see your handiwork. Turn our eyes to gaze on thee. Turn our souls that they may be lifted up unto thee. Lord Jesus, in your mercy and your love, Quicken the word to each heart. Seems such a simple word, really. Yet really it's so profound. If only people could see. Work out your purposes. Till we can say with the saints of old, we know that all things work together for good. To those who love God, we know that everything in our lives are working together for good. You're working out your purposes. We don't understand them. We just believe thee. Oh, Master, keep each one, bless each one, and draw each one. I pray in Jesus' precious name.